welcome back to Linux and Ham Shack. My name is Richard, KB5JBV, and uh, tonight we're going to try and have another one of those festivals for the senses for you all. We've already been through crashes and, and stuff not working and everything else, but it's going to get better because this is not number 13, so we don't have to worry about the dreaded Triskaidekaphobia. Let me introduce you to the co-host of this show, my 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 partner and good friend up in the pine forest, Russ, K5TUX. Say hello, Russ. Hello, everybody. This is Russ, K5TUX, up in the pine forest and on top of, well, actually down in the valley between the mountains in the Ozarks. And I have nothing else to say, so we'll send it back to Richard, who's got a bunch of feedback to start with. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's because I like to talk. Y'all know I like to talk, and we try and keep it that way. I was listening to myself on the last program, and I promised to try not to swing my head about like I was doing before. Uh, let me start with Pat over on Twitter. Uh, got a hold of me just before we got started. Apparently, he's just listened to episode 14 because he wanted to let me know that, yes, believe it or not, VKs can have two by four call signs, two up front and four in the back. So apparently, when we were talking about that blog last time around, it is entirely possible that was the whole call. I did a little investigation into that uh, email about the foundation calls. Well, it turns out that the first letter after the number is always an F, and that's to indicate that it's a foundation call. So the VK5FNET is basically VK5NET in the foundation class. So I, I actually went down there, and they have a vanity call sign program, just like we do, and you can pick a, a foundation class call sign, give it, give it whatever you want, but that F stays the same, just in case anybody happens to go to Australia and wants to get a call sign. Well, there you go. Uh, I myself uh, have never considered getting an Australian call sign, even though I have thought more than once about disappearing down that direction. But now at least we're straight on it. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of threw us for a curve. All righty. Uh, first up on email, we've got one from uh, Joe, NE3R, and he says... I find Zastar and, uh, to be one of the best APRS clients around, certainly the most up-to-date. I compile from source every time. It has a lot of dependencies for compiling. When you run the dot .configure and it fails, it should tell you what it is missing. By the way, I'm a Slackware guy, of course. I've been running Linux for 14 years. I haven't been exclusively Linux for a while but on and off. I've removed Windows from all my computers. Oddly enough, I'm a Microsoft consultant by profession. I like to, I like Slack because it reminds me more of Linux the way I learned it. 73, Joe, NE3R. Well, Joe, there you go. Uh, we're going to start researching APRS and the packet thing a little heavier. I'm going to have to dig out some equipment over here before I can start experimenting and try and get things going. But we're having a lot of uh, questions about that. And as far as being a Microsoft Microsoft consultant, I know four or five guys that uh, either are consultants for Microsoft or uh, build software that runs on uh, Windows or that kind of stuff. And these guys, they... Uh, <laughs> They all run Linux, so uh, that ought to tell you something. Maybe uh, maybe number seven will be better. You know, they're they're 
they're going to put Linux out of business. At least that's what I've been hearing. So y'all just stay tuned. Uh, what do you think about that one, Russ? I went and checked out Slackware for the first time in years after reading that email just to see what they kind of done in the recent past. Still looks like another same old, same old Linux distribution, though I think he has piqued my interest enough that I might actually go try and install it on something. Uh, the last time I tried it, it was a kind of a pain in the butt, but it looks like they have a decent installer now. And as far as Windows 7 is concerned, I just installed it for the first time the other day on a computer at my house. I downloaded Release Candidate 1 and installed it, and you know what? looks just like Windows. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be that much better. In fact, I went over to the website and took a look, and they'll let you download a trial version that will run uh, that will run for one year and then stop. Now, what good is that? Well, they want to get you to pay for it eventually, <laughs> but did you see what they do with the demo version before they allow it to quit? It actually uh, runs for two hours and then shuts itself down, and that's their—that's how they limit the trial version. I was wondering how that would be different from the normal version of Windows. Because it runs twice as long. Of course. <laughs> now, we're not going to go to slamming Windows because, <laughs> like I said before, I've said before plenty of times, they all have their uses. You know, you have Windows when you need time, when it's time to take a break. You need Linux when you need to get work done. And when you want things to look really, really pretty, you need a magic fruit-filled computer. Alrighty, so, uh, next one that we've got here is from Bill, KA9WKA. And Bill says, hi guys, I recently discovered Linux in the ham shack and spent the last week or so getting caught up on the podcast. I've enjoyed them all. I've been using Linux since Red Hat 4.2 and have toyed with using it for ham radio applications on and off over the years. Last year, I purchased an Asus EEE PC and ran Puppy Linux and FL Digi with some success. I then tried to find some way to get Zastar to run on it, but could not get any of the optional maps to work. Your program inspired me to try again. I installed Ubuntu 9.04 on a flash drive and using a newer version of Zastar from the repositories, it works. Well, boy, we need to get get our hands on this guy. <laughs> it works. Even managed to install some additional maps, which had been a stumbling block for me in the older version. I'm typing this as I listen to the show number 12, and I'd like to encourage Ronnie... K4RJJ to try Ubuntu 904 and Zastar from the repository. It worked for me. I should add that while Zastar works on the triple EPC 701, it is quite slow. I suspect it's partly because I'm running it from a flash drive. By the way, you may wish to point out to the listeners that Pendrive Linux website and we need to put that one on the website, if our website is a link if we get a chance. Pendrive Linux website at http colon stroke stroke www.pendrivelinux.com as they have a bunch of installation tutorials for getting various flavors of Linux running on flash drives. Thanks for the encouragement and entertainment. I hope the show continues for some times. Best regard. Bill, KA9WKA. Well, there you go. 
Uh, thank you, Bill. And uh, let me tell you, I tried this past week to uh, load one onto a pen drive, and unfortunately the ones I have around here for some reason don't want to boot. But uh, I was using uh, NetBooting also, or UNetBooting also to try and get it going, and really didn't have a lot of time to experiment it experiment with it i had one of my machines quit working a few days ago so i've been uh, fighting gnome in debian believe it or not but uh thank you for the good words and uh like i said uh get back in touch with us because we really need to try and get this packet thing squared away so we can get some information out to the guys so what do you think about that one russ it's looking like we're going to need to put together uh an episode on packet and aprs because for some reason, everybody who writes in seems to want to deal with APRS, and that's something that I personally haven't had a lot of experience with. So I think maybe we need an episode on APRS. Well, I have plenty of packet experience. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of packet experience on Linux. Uh, I quit running packet about the time I quit using Windows full-time, so uh, I'm still trying to get that one figured out. But, yep, going to have to roll up the sleeves and dig in because I've got probably a half dozen packet controllers around here, and it probably wouldn't hurt to get uh, one or two of them going anyway. We're going to end up running behind y'all, so y'all pay attention. Y'all don't doze off in the chat room there. For those of y'all listening that uh, haven't heard yet, we do do this show live, and you're welcome to join us in the chat room. Just drop by lhsinfo.org, and uh, you'll be able to find the schedule for that. So next up, we've got one from Hal, W4OE. And Hal writes, I'm new to Linux. I just loaded Ubuntu 8.04 on my AMD64 machine. It works very well, but as an amateur radio op, I don't have a clue on how to config my two ham radio programs I loaded. I'm running a signal-linked USB sound card connected to a TS2000 receiver for PSK31. I also have a data switch, so I can switch in and out my CAMXL for VHF packet. Well, I cannot, I cannot see any sound in the software packages. Uh, GMFSK, GPSK31. I bet you get tired of answering questions for dummies like me. Hi, hi. Anyway, I sure would appreciate it, your help. Best 73s, Hal W4OE. Well, we've been hearing a lot of stuff about those signal links, and it's my intention to get my hands on one so I can uh, give it a shot. We've been pointing everybody towards FL Digi, which is easier to work with than some of the stuff that's in the package repositories. You have to know a little bit about PSK31 stuff to get those going. Uh, The uh, signal link USBs have been a little difficult uh, for folks to get going, but uh, not impossible because there's a lot of folks out there running them. As far as the CAMXL, I did not have the time to research it. There is a terminal program that you can use to run that cam. That is, uh, it's an old phone terminal program that runs in Linux. If you're wanting to run regular packet, if you're wanting to run something like APRS or uh, WinLink or something like that, there are some more specialized programs to allow you to do that kind of stuff. As we said just a few minutes ago, we're going to have to put together a packet program. Uh, No doubt about it. So, uh, what do you think about Hal's email, Russ? Thanks, Hal, for writing in. And don't worry about asking questions for dummies, because we're dummies ourselves about half the time and have to look up all the answers to these questions anyway. Yeah, what we don't already know or like to think we know. 
That's right, because Russ has forgotten more about amateur radio than I ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew as much about ham radio as you've already forgotten, or something like that. Anyway, or something. Yeah. We've all forgotten everything, and we don't know nothing. Yeah. But we're going to give it a try anyway. In fact, most of the folks in the chat room have all the answers, so y'all need to sign on in over there and ask them some questions. Oh, yeah, we need to talk about that later, too. But for now, we've gotten past the marathon messages, so let's go to the next email, which is from W9ZEB, who's with us tonight in the chat room, unless he dozed off on us, and uh, looks like Ted has showed up. Let's see. He writes, just found your podcast. Thanks for doing this. Now, that's pretty straightforward and to the point, and I sure do appreciate it. He was nice enough to put a nice little write-up on his blog about us. And I don't actually have the blog entry in front of me, but I do have a Google alert that came to me. I have the blog. Well, why don't you give them the information on that? All right, I will do that. The blog is uh, looks like it's at w9zeb.org. There's a host name INSA, and I don't know if that's part of something, because I just clicked on the link. But let's assume the whole URL is valid, and that would be INSA. India, November, Sierra, Alpha, dot W9ZEB, Z Echo Bravo, dot org. And the blog is called Sleep is for the Week. And he posted a blog post about us called Unix in the Ham Shack. And it reads, it's a short post, so I can just go ahead and read it here. It says, I'd just like to toss a link in the direction of a pretty good resource of hams looking to get involved in the world of Linux. Linux in the Handshack run a pretty regular podcast you can download via the iTunes Music Store. I'm primarily a BSD user personally, but everything they're talking about applies to most modern Unix-like operating systems. Past topics have included rig control, digital modes, logging software, and all other forms of computer-related ham radio topics. Thank you for the resource, K5TUX and KB5JBV. I look forward to future podcasts. Well, we look forward to future listenership, and thanks for showing up in the chat room tonight. And he do confirm that that's HTTP colon slash stroke stroke INSA dot W9ZEB dot ORG. And if you want to get specific, it uh, looks like a WordPress page, so it's uh, page 424 if you want to want to jump on it that way. All righty. Uh, earlier we read one from Joe. NE3R, and uh, I ended up getting a Google alert from him. Uh, I said a while ago that he wrote us up uh, something nice on his blog also. The name of his blog is CryptoJoe.blogspot.com. I don't have the full page in front of me, but what I do have is I found a good site full of podcasts on using Linux for ham radio applications, Linux in a ham shack. Some of them are pretty basic. And it was tough for me, an experienced Linux user, to sit through the first few. But they got pretty, and I bet it said pretty good. But uh, once again, thank you, Joe, for your kind words. And we try and put as many of these blogs up as links as possible. I will get around to putting up all these blog posts one of these days. I, I, I do have a feeling that someday I'll get caught up. We just never know when that day will be. Well, believe it or not, we have a list, <laughs> and we are working on it. Let me finish that blog post just so we get the, the goodness out. As an experienced Linux user, the first few were tough to sit through, but they got pretty good. 
I found a new Linux ham radio application that I'm going to try called FL Digi, thanks to those guys. And that was Joe Martin, and you had the call sign handy. I don't have it in front of me because I'm looking at the blog. It's November Echo 3R. So thanks, NE3R, and we will make sure we get a link to your blog and put it prominently on our web page. Okay, next one we got is from Kent, V-E-4-K-E-H. And uh, Kent writes, Hi, Richard. I don't know why, Richard. Maybe Richard and Russ. I was a regular listener of LHS early, early on, and only recently got caught back up again. I enjoy your sense of humor, the eclectic music selections of Russ, and the wide variety of ham Linux topics the both of you cover. I even enjoy listening to episodes when your plans fall through, episode 11. Well, I got some news about that, something I was thinking about, and I don't think Russell object, but let me finish the email. Uh, you guess, you guys had asked about donation. Well, here's my donation. And that's not what it says, but I don't make a habit of reading numbers. Uh, haha, just kidding. And that's from Kent. VK4KEH. Oh, wait a minute. There's some more. Wait, there's more. <laughs> uh, if you need a topic to discuss, how about Pulse Audio? I wish somebody would explain Pulse Audio to me. Audio to me. Uh, when I was running Puppy Linux 3.01, Pulse wasn't available. So I, it wasn't a problem running QTEL. And QTEL is the one we've talked about that the uh, Echolink client and IHU, which I'm not familiar with. Now that I run Debian testing, calm down, Russ. Pulse makes things difficult. I see that QTEL was developed under Fedora Core 9, which uses Pulse. What gives? Keep up the good work, guys. Kent, V-E-4-K-E-H. Well, I'm going to throw that one to you since he he wanted you to calm down. (laughs) I guess I'm calm. I'm not sure why I wouldn't be just because someone else is using Debian testing I guess you know yay Debian testing as far as pulse audio is concerned I do actually have some experience with pulse audio because I was trying to use it to make my Linux experience with audio better by being able to use audacity and another sound device at the same time however pulse audio did not help me to this end but if we want to talk about Pulse Audio in a future episode, we can certainly do that, and I will have probably more than enough to say about it. Yeah, because Russ is way smarter on this stuff than I am. <laughs> Are you doing the Roomba over there? I'm sorry? Are you doing the Roomba over there? Yeah, I'm just trying to do something, man. I keep sticking to the fabric. <laughs> I know that ain't going to make the cut. <laughs> it yeah, it, may, it may find its way into the cut somewhere you don't expect. If y'all want the family version of this program, you're going to have to download the episode. Because when we go live, there ain't no telling what might happen. And along with that, uh, we received a donation from VK4KEH, which makes him number one on the donation list. Number one, because he's the only one who has so far. I'm not going to bug y'all about it right now. Thank you very much, Kent, uh, VE4KEH, for the donation. Thanks for being number one. Hopefully you'll uh, be the one who has opened the floodgates to the donation bucket. Yeah, but we're not going to nag this time. We'll Next time we'll put on put on a hard sell. <laughs> uh, you know, we haven't even threatened commercials yet. <laughs> okay. Well, that pretty much uh, wraps up the email. I've got a few things here we probably could go over really quick. 
and uh, then we probably need to go to a break. So let me run through the first one here. I was on a IRC the other night and ended up hooking up with Monster B from over to Linux Cranks, Linux Podcast. We talked for a while, and he said he really enjoyed the show, and he's not even an amateur radio operator. And uh, those guys, they're a little wild, but they know their stuff. Uh, if you all listen to Chad Wallenberg, he hangs out with that bunch and that kind of stuff. And uh, I was really happy that uh, somebody of that knowledge in uh, in the Linux world would find our show interesting and something that he would take the time to listen to. So I'd like to say thank you to Monster B for uh, his kind comments. And I will suggest that you all go over and, you know, we try, try to give you all uh, information on other programs to go listen to. I would suggest you all go listen to Linux Cranks. I have two things to tell you before you go hunting for it. Number one, it is not family-friendly. So if you go over there and download their program, don't play it around your wife and kids, and darn sure don't play it in front of your boss. Number two, they are hardcore Linux users over there, so it only comes in AUG format. There is no MP3 format. So uh, if you all want to go over and give it a listen, and I had the URL up, I can't remember what I've done with it, but Russ will find that, and we'll get it plugged in here somewhere. Okay, next up, uh, since we're talking about other Linux programs that could help you out, I found a couple of extra ones this past week and have started listening to them. And uh, as far as the basic user level on Linux, these are a couple of programs you might be interested in. The uh, first one is the Mintcast, M-I-N-T-C-A-S-T. Uh, even though the name would make you think that it's all about Linux Mint. It is not. It's more a basic Linux-type program. They're currently up to episode 15, which was released last night or the night before. And uh, the fellow that runs the show over there, and his name eludes me at the moment, <laughs> really seems like he's on top of it. So uh, y'all go on over and listen to Mintcast. They're over at mintcast.org. Or, for those of y'all who like the long one, http colon stroke stroke www.mintcast.org. And uh, they're even available at iTunes, I believe. I think that's how I added them to uh, my my collection. And last but not least, we have one called Productive Linux. Now, Productive Linux is also a, uh, a starter-type Linux program, folks new to Linux. But it's geared more towards pointing you towards applications that would make your productivity where your uh, desktop can be greater. Uh, they talk about some of the, some basic tools, some intermediate tools to help you get along. Uh, I was listening to them today. They were talking about things like uh, the Epiphany browser. I recently did a review on Johnny Jackalope. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes and uh, some other things. In fact, uh, this guy, a lot of the stuff he talks about revolves around uh, doing writing and making uh, reports and stuff like that. But currently at the top of their blog list, they've got one about uh, ZimWiki. Now, I have no idea what ZimWiki is, and Russ can probably enlighten us on that. But uh, it's a really good show, and it's worth a listen. It, just to uh, listen to it long enough to figure out you don't want to listen to it. And that you can find that one over at http colon stroke stroke 
ProductiveLinux, one word, dot com. That's ProductiveLinux.com. Okay, now I've run my head a few minutes. It's your turn, Russ. I don't have anything to run my head about, except that I did find the URL for the Linux Cranks Ogcast, and they call it an Ogcast because they are hardcore and don't do MP3 formats. And it's at linuxcranks.info. So you can go ahead and download the program there if you're interested in that, and we will put a link to their site, or I will put a link to their site one of these days when I get around to doing that kind of thing. All righty. So now we've done all that, uh, before we go to break, do you have anything else for us? I don't think so. I think we've hit all of the feedback and the donations that we can talk about in half an hour. Well, in that case, my suggestion is, everybody listening out there, y'all just wait a minute.
Okay, and we're back. All right. Well, it's like I was uh, telling y'all earlier, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ubuntu 9.04, Jaunty Jackalope. Now, the thing about Jackalopes is uh, we have them running loose in the wild down here in Texas, and people just don't believe it. But I know there's one little fella in Puerto Rico that I worked in on 10 meters 15 years ago that has a picture of one. So y'all uh y'all just uh hang in there because the jackalope do exist in fact he's probably out having a drink in a, a cigar with the penguin so i'm gonna give y'all a little little background on this i'm gonna tell y'all how things went for me with johnny jackalope we're gonna start from the very beginning never in my life except for when i upgraded from feisty fawn to gups gusty gutsy gibbons gutsy gibbon was I ever able to click the upgrade button on Ubuntu and have it upgrade? So I went through my normal ordeal with 904, which is okay because I normally have to wipe everything out and start over again every time it comes up for an upgrade. Of course, I've never run across a Linux that wasn't that way. But I went ahead and downloaded the live CD, stuck it in my drive, fired the thing up, we got all the way down to the desktop, and Nautilus would not run. This is on the live CD, y'all. I messed with that for a few days. I asked a few questions in the forums and that kind of stuff to see if anybody else was having problems like that. No one could really give me a straight answer. It was it would keep coming up, throwing a segmentation fault error, and Nautilus would refuse to load. Everything else ran just fine on the live CD, uh, but Nautilus would not. So my suggestion is that you do not download the live CD, or if you do, don't try to run the live CD of Ubuntu, the GNOME desktop version. Now, the live CD of KDE, when I plugged it in, fired it up, it went all the way to the desktop, it ran just fine, KDE 4 came up, no problem, ran just like it was supposed to. So apparently there's an issue on the live CD. Now, I would think that this was a mistake, but more often than not, the live CDs for the Ubuntu, which is the GNOME desktop version of Ubuntu, when it comes out, normally does not work the way it's supposed to. Okay, so we got past that, and I decided to go ahead and load it onto the machine. I had tried everything else. It wasn't working out, so... I have this philosophy, y'all. It works for radios. It works for computers. Well, I may do this, and it may not work. But it's not working now, so what have I got to lose? So I took the live CD and stuck it in. I scrolled down to install and hit it, and off we went. Now, the uh, installer on Ubuntu 904 is pretty similar to the one we described in Ubuntu 8.10. In fact, I can't right off the top of my head think of any differences at all. The uh, partitioning tool is the same. All the questions are pretty much the same. And once you get to the end, you hit enter, and then you get up and go get your glass of soda. Uh, after a short time, probably about 30, 45 minutes, I came back to the machine, sat down. The advantage of using the uh, one that has the GNOME t desktop that it installs with it is the fact that it doesn't take near as long for it to load up than the KDE version. Once we got all that loaded and went to fire it up, it fired up just fine and ran exactly like it was supposed to. 
After that, I got to looking around. There were plenty of tools already pre-installed in Ubuntu 9.04. Some that you know and love, like Presario, some of the games, Blackjack, I'll Write Solitaire Chess, uh, graphics programs, the GIMPs in there, still loading Firefox by default, I believe. No, Evolution. No, Firefox is loading. You also load Evolution. Of course, I get rid of Evolution, put Thunderbird in anyway. Open Office, even Compass. If your if your computer is capable of do, of running Compass, uh, it will install it and get a at least the very lowest level of Compass running for you. And for those of you who don't know what Compass is, we will cover that in a future show. It's really cool. I hope to do a screencast for y'all. The default media player is still Rhythmbox. That's one of the things I have to replace. I don't like Rhythmbox. I prefer Banshee. But even down in the uh, in the system tools, by default, you have a root terminal uh, installed. So you've got these basic things. You've also got the basic uh, setup stuff over in the system menu. The bar is pretty basic uh, GNOME desktop with the brown theme. Of course, the uh, default background is much better than some of the ones in the past and has no animal on it at all. So I ran this thing, and uh, I found out that, number one, it boots from pushing the start button to at the desktop ready to go. I got the clock down, ran the timer on it, one minute, 60 seconds from pushing the power button to being ready to go at the desktop once it is fully loaded. Even on the live CD, it was taking only two minutes to get to that point. So I got it up, got it running. It's running really fast. I've also noted, noticed that it runs faster in some of the programs I use every day. Now, the programs I use every day are Firefox, Thunderbird, XChat, Gwibber, Transmission. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Transmission is a... Uh, a BitTorrent client, and those are the ones that I use every day without fail. I even went and loaded OpenOffice, and OpenOffice, being the size it is, takes a pretty fair amount of time to load on whatever system you're on. If you're running it on Windows, you might as well go have lunch. It even loaded much, much faster. There's a good selection of out-of-the-box software with this, and we had someone ask about uh, this all the stuff you don't want with these distributions and we will do a program in the future on getting rid of some of that stuff but as far as Ubuntu 904 is concerned this copy that I'm running here after I modified it it took me nothing to get the uh, wireless networking going on it after I got it modified the way I wanted it for a base startup got my email transferred over got my bookmarks in there got the wireless network hooked up and running and got the sound the way I wanted it it is definitely a winner. As far as Ubuntu 904, if you can get it, if you want to upgrade to it, go to it. But once again, you're going to have those minor problems. And some guys were having, in the forums, were having some problems running some programs. On this machine, which is an AMD e-machine, that 1 gigahertz with about a half a gig of memory in it, this thing is running like a champ. It runs better than the long-term release. 804. And with that, that's probably just about everything I can say about Johnny Jackalope at this point. Russ, do you have anything at all to add? Because I've been going all by myself for quite a few minutes now. 
and I told you that's probably the way it was going to be because I haven't had a chance to look at Jaunty this uh, at this point. However, I have looked at some other people's blogs and such who have looked at Jaunty, and you're not the only person to have experienced the segmentation fault in Nautilus. There are several people who reference it in their blog posts. So did you have the behavior that they saw where you got a you got the top and bottom menu bars and a blank screen? Yeah, I got everything except the uh, background, and then I would get a message that said segmentation fault, and Nautilus would not load. And that was only with the live CD. Now, like I said, once I got it loaded to the hard drive fire and fired it up the first time, I haven't had that problem again. So it had to be a problem with their live CD. But I've had I've run into problems with that before. It definitely looks like a problem with the CD. There are no bugs reported about it. Several people just blogged about it. And I also see that there may be some problems with EXT4 support. It looks like Jaunty uh, supports EXT4 file systems. But a couple of people have referenced problems with getting the partition manager to actually deal with them properly. So I guess if you're going to be brave and try EXT4, you may have bad results if you're dealing with uh, Ubuntu 9.04. But other than that, things have been positive and... Most people reference the fact that their boot-up times from grub to the kernel stage and then to loading the X windows is generally faster even than the benchmarks. We're talking about less than 60 seconds to boot up the entire system from power on to cursor, and uh, that's pretty good. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's very quick. It's very quick loading. And even though it's continuing to load stuff, after you're at the point you can use it from pushing the power button to the desktop, ready to go, one minute. That's all I've all I've waited since I loaded it in. And uh, let's see, who was it? Brian with a Y and uh, Peter Nicolaitis over at Fresh Ubuntu uh, both made mention of some of the some of the issues with EXT4. Uh, by default, EXT3 is the file system that uh, loads. If you want EXT4, then you have to play with it to get it there. And uh, considering it hadn't been out that long, I, I just recently moved to EXT3, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm that way. You know, I'm the guy that ran Windows 98 until uh, uh, XP had been out five years. Yeah, you are a little bit behind if you're just now getting into EXT3. The, the journaling file system has been around and is tried in t- tried and tested has been a valuable file system for quite a while now <laughs> well the thing is i use, i have used riser i used ext2 then moved to ext3 but uh if there's anything in my machines that's important to me it's my data and more spe- more specifically than anything else my pictures of my grandbabies just out of curiosity why did you stop using riser uh simply because i was using it on susa and when I moved off SUSE, I went to XT2 or XT3 when I started running Debian, simply because that was the uh, default option. The XT4 does look nice. I've heard some stuff, some good stuff about it when it finally gets working the way it's supposed to. But my understanding is it doesn't work the way it's supposed to yet. Yeah, well, that was W9ZEB asked that question. Yeah, W9ZEB made the comment that references why I was asking why you stopped using Riser, and I was curious if that was the reason, but apparently it's not. <laughs> I guess we should leave poor Hans Riser alone. 
Okay, before we wrap up Ubuntu 904, has anybody got any questions? It doesn't look like we have any newbies out there. Well, this will just be a short segment then. Because when we come back, Russ is going to talk about SSH. And I'm going to be quiet a while. Y'all are going to love that. This is the most laid-back show we've ever done. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute.
Okay, we're back. Oh, boy, we've got an exciting, exciting discussion going on in the chat room. All of you who are not listening to the live show, y'all really need to make a point of getting over to lhsinfo.org and checking out the schedule so y'all can be here for the live show when we record on the every other Tuesday night. Uh, there's an active discussion going on about file systems and uh, criminals and Germans and all kinds of stuff. But in our ongoing discussion about uh, working our way towards rig control over over the Internet and that kind of stuff, somebody asked about that a few weeks back. And one of the steps in that is we're going to have to learn how to at least install and do the basic things with SSH across our network, and that kind of stuff. This past week, for example, uh, I have loaded operating system on uh, a machine that I really didn't think I was going to be able to get an operating system back on. And in the process, instead of running back and forth across the radio room uh, to operate the keyboards on each keyboards on each one, I sat here in my favorite chair and used SSH to do things that I needed to do. In the case of transferring my email, I used SCP and copied it across the network over to another machine, the the, uh, profile for Thunderbird, my uh, Mozilla profile, and even uh, my bookmarks and stuff. So as far as the basic setup, we know that uh, most of these distributions either install the SSH client or the SSH server, but they rarely install both. And in fact, let me start with this. Secure Shell, or SSH, is a network protocol that allows data to be exchanged using a secure channel between two network devices. Used primarily on Linux and Unix-based systems to access shell accounts, SSH is designed as a replacement for Telnet and other insecure remote shells which send information, notably passwords, in plain text, leaving them open to interception. The encryption used by SSH provides confidential and confidentiality and integrity of the data over an insecure network, such as the Internet. How'd you like that? Well, I can bet five cents where you got that from. <laughs> If I had my other camera hooked up, I could show you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to guess Wikipedia. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. The second most popular receptacle of all knowledge. They are number two. Yeah, I've noticed lately that when I go do a Google search, that the first or sometimes second response to most of my searches tends to be a Wikipedia entry. Number one is a sub-methon electronic component that says don't panic on the cover. Uh, of course, yeah. There you, there you go. So onward to SSH as we digress <laughs> once more. Well, I don't have my towel handy, but I'll try and make it through this. Okay, well, SSH is actually useful for a lot more things than simply connecting to a remote machine, but that's what most people do with it. And that's the scenario you pretty much described when you were talking about it in your little intro to the segment, where if you want to connect to your remote machine and do something from a terminal that's far away, whether you're at a hotel or maybe at a conference or something like that, you can use SSH for that kind of remote access. And that's the simplest and most common way that it gets used. In most cases, you might be on a Linux machine connecting to another Linux machine or another Unix variant. 
in which case you'll probably access SSH from the command line. Simply typing SSH is the easiest way to deal with it. There are distributions, X-Window packages that will allow you to use SSH embedded in a terminal window or an X-Window or something like that. But SSH from the command line is the way I typically do it, and that's the way I'm going to describe it. Basically, SSH runs over uh, port 22, so if you're wanting to connect to a remote machine using it, you'll want to have port 22 open. If you're connecting using a Windows firewall, you'll have to allow port 22 traffic. It's TCP connectivity, so if you're still using TCP wrappers, you can restrict it using TCP wrappers. And for anyone who doesn't know what those are, in a Linux distribution, you'll have a f- two files under slash Etsy, one called host.deny and one called host.allow. You can specify different options in there. The files are pretty well documented, and you can also use the man command to get more detailed information about the syntax and the information you put in those files about restricting access to things like SSH. For Debian and Ubuntu, you'll be wanting to install the SSH server if you want to connect to a machine remotely. Um, that'll either be the SSHD package or it will be the open SSH-server package. And I'm pretty sure if you install the server side of the package that they install the client side by default. But the client will either be SSH or open SSH-client. And you can either install one or both of those depending on which ones you'll need. If you install the server side, that will allow remote connections to that machine as long as you're allowing connection through port 22. And there are also several configuration options in the file slash Etsy slash SSH slash SSHD underscore config. That's where this the daemon configuration or the server side configuration lives. There's also a file called ssh underscore config, and that's where the client-side configuration lives. There's lots of directives in this file. You probably won't have to touch most of them. One you might want to touch is the server key bits, which defaults to 768. You might want to raise that up a little bit if you want to have a more complex key. You'll have to regenerate your host keys. And that's something I'm not going to go into here, how to regenerate your host keys, but it's something you can do. If your system is pretty secure and you think it's going to be reasonably secure, you may or may not want to allow root logins. There's a context config called permit root login. You can set that to yes or set that to no. If you set it to yes, root can log into your server directly from a remote site. If no, You have to log in as an unprivileged user and then sudo or su to root. So depending on how paranoid you are, you'll want to set that accordingly. Most of the other things you won't have to touch. And if you make any modifications to that file, you'll want to restart the SSH daemon. And you do that by typing slash etsy slash init.d slash ssh space restart. That will change your options and allow you to update whatever configurations you made. So then from a remote client, you can use SSH, just typing SSH and the host name or the host IP. 
and that will connect you to a remote machine using the username that you are on the local client. If you want to specify a different username for the remote machine, you can do it a couple of ways. You can specify the dash U option with a username, or you can type SSH username at and then the host name, kind of like an email address. And that will log you in on the remote server as the username you specify. You still have to enter a password if you don't specify a password on the command line. Everybody in the chat room seems to know exactly what he's talking about, but I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but that's okay, because the basic side of it is, y'all, is that uh, if you get fairly proficient using the uh, using the terminal in uh, in Linux for one thing or another, you can do the same thing over your network via SSH, uh, logging into another machine or even logging into another machine at a remote location. And uh, it's uh, even my understanding that you can forward X11 or forward a desktop across SSH. And this is the direction we're moving in this process. For you new guys, the main thing you need to do if you have more than one machine on your, uh, more than one Linux machine in your house, you can experiment. Go over into your package manager and make sure that you have two things installed. Uh, the first one you want to make sure you have installed is SSH client. SSH client. In some uh, distri- distributions, it'll be op- open SSH. And if you're really feeling adventurous and you've got a Windows machine over on one side of the room and a Linux machine on the other side of the room, uh, you can download CYGWIN and add SSH to that and run SSH through that. Now, uh, the other thing you're going to need is the SSH server because if you attempt to uh, connect to a machine via SSH and you do not have the server, it will call you bad names. It will point its finger at you and stick its tongue out. So you need to make sure you have these things installed. Am I right, Russ? Definitely so. If you, Like I said, if you install the server side, you pretty much get the client side by default. The package managers assume that if you're running a server, you probably want to use the client too. But the converse is not true. If you install the client, you will probably not get the server. And most of the Debian and I believe the Ubuntu installations that I've seen do not install the server side by default. So you have to install them if you want to connect to your machines remotely. Exactly. In fact, my experience over the last week has been that Debian installs the client but not the server, and Ubuntu installs the server but not the client, or at least the newest version of Ubuntu. And Debian 5.01 is the uh, version of Debian I'm talking about. Sorry for interrupting, Russ. Not a problem. You brought up forwarding X windows across SSH. It's actually a very simple process and one that people might find very useful if they happen to want to see the results of an X windows session remotely. The easiest way to do this is to type SSH and give it the dash Y dash capital Y option. So you type SSH dash Y capital Y with username and host name, and then the name of the application you want to run on the remote server. In some cases, you may have to turn on X-forwarding for this to work. That's kind of out of the scope of this little discussion. So if you go back to the SSH-Y username at site, and then the application that you want to run, 
what will happen is you'll connect to the remote server via SSH. It will execute, well, it will log you in first and then execute the application and forward the video from that application to your local machine. So you'll be running the application remotely, but you'll be seeing it locally. You know, that's a really cool functionality. Now, there's one caveat to that that I would like to bring up, and that is that if the remote application that you want to run happens to be Firefox or Ice Weasel, depending on your distribution, make sure that you do not have a local copy of Firefox and or Mozilla running at the same time. Because if you do, the remote executable will mistake your SSH connection for the local side and will just start another local browser. If you actually do not have Ice Weasel or Firefox running and then do the SSH-Y and start up Ice Weasel, then you will see Ice Weasel on the remote machine, not your own machine. So just a little caveat there, specific to Mozilla. But that's a very useful function. I do a lot of stuff that way. You can see your email clients on a remote machine. You can run applications for doing, like, performance benchmarking, or if you just want to see a calendar application or something on your remote machine, using SSH is a good way to do it. And all of the data that's passed back and forth between the machines is secure because it's encrypted through the tunnel that's created. I don't remember which program it was, but we had a man that asked about running uh, digital via SSH or uh, using X11 forwarding to his computer at home and that kind of stuff and we're putting all the pieces together in the puzzle and eventually once we have all the pieces then y'all will be able to uh, put it together and we might even run down through it in a straight line and put it all together for you but uh, no Russ keep on going I'm learning lots of stuff and the guys in the chat room have gone all IT professional on us so they're not even listening at all so go ahead Well, actually, someone in the chat room earlier brought up YFK log, and YFK log is a perfect example of an application you might want to use with SSH tunneling. You know, you can specify SSH-Y, remote host, and YFK log, and then if you happen to be at someone else's shack, you can use their rig but still log to your own home database and see the application just as if you were running it on your own desktop. So that's a good way to use it. There are other ways to use SSH, including things like SCP, which um, is a secure shell copy application. It works using SSH, and it basically does an SSH, but what it does is it connects to a remote site and does a copy, just like the local CP command, but instead of copying files from one file system to another on a local machine, it will actually copy files back and forth between a local and a remote machine. And it does so securely because all of the data, again, is encrypted through the SSH tunnel, so you don't have to worry about that data being copied or hijacked during the transfer. So SCP is useful for that. And there's a there's a corollary to SCP called SFTP, which does the same thing using the FTP protocol. SSH is something that comes with Linux distributions. If, for example, you're using Windows or even Mac OS, you can use well, macOS is BSD underneath, so you can pop open a terminal, and there's an SSH client installed there. And, of course, you can install an SSH server as well for macOS, and you can tunnel into your lovely fruit build computer remotely as well. 
if you're on Windows, there is a free application called Putty, P-U-T-T-Y, which is great for using SSH from Windows. Now, this is this is only client-side. This is connecting from Windows to an SSH server on a Linux machine or a Mac OS X machine or some other Unix variety. You have to jump through a lot of major hoops if you want to set up an SSH server under Windows, and there's a lot of there are some free ways to do that, and there are some not free ways to do that. In my experience, connectivity to Windows using SSH doesn't allow you much anyway. But using Putty, um, and you can just go, you can just Google for Putty and download it. It comes for you can even use it for other things. I mean, you can use it on Mac OS, you can use it under Windows. And it's great for doing terminal connection to an SSH server. And if you get down into it a little bit and you're actually running an X Windows environment on your local machine, whether that's in Mac OS or one of the X window clients for Windows, you can actually forward your X sessions using PuTTY to Windows. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I haven't done it much. I haven't really had a need. But if for some reason you need to see an X application when you're running Windows, it can be done. And Putty is the way you would do it. Um, this might be something that in a future episode or maybe a sub-episode where I can do a screen capture movie type thing, show somebody how to do that because it might be of interest to somebody. Uh, but for right now, I think it's a little outside the scope of what I'm talking about here since I'm just rambling about SSH. There are some other things that are really cool about SSH. Uh, one of the most recent things I found out is SSH, uh, SSHFS, which I mentioned in an earlier episode but didn't really talk about. Some environments allow SSH connectivity to their hosts, but they don't allow you direct shell access, like you can't log into their machines. But what they do is they allow you to connect using SSH and then mount a remote file system using SSH on your local machine so that you can use it just like a C drive or a D drive or, you know, a partition under Linux. And you can do things like, you know, copy files to it, edit files. You know, underneath all of this is an SSH connection to a remote machine, but it all looks like you're doing it on your local host. The only time you might notice something a little weird about it is if you're doing a file copy or something like that. It may seem a little slow but that's because you're actually doing a transfer back and forth between a local and a remote machine, even though everything sort of appears like it's sitting on your box. So that's a cool thing to do. I would suggest that everyone just take a rundown through the man page for SSH or the SSH server, take a look at how to configure it, take a look at PuTTY, look at SSHFS if you want to get really interested in uh, some of the cooler things you can do with SSH. And if you really want to get deep into it, uh, check out the man page for SSH Agent. Um, I don't even want to start talking about SSH Agent because there's all kinds of cool stuff you can do with that. Just run around, check out the man pages, look into it, and I think I hit the basics of SSH to do things like uh, running applications remotely, which is how most people will probably want to use it, how to forward X, and unless someone has a question or Richard wants to steer me in another direction, I think I'm going to shut up about SSH. We will, in the future, uh, be talking about Screen, which was brought up by W9ZB. We've definitely got that on the list. 
we've pretty much wrapped our, up our discussion of uh, SSH, and the discussion has moved on over to Waffle House. So I think we've pretty much done as much productive discussion as we can for this particular episode. Russ, do you have anything else to add? No, I don't. I've expended all of my energy on SSH, so I'll have to recoup for the next time, and then we'll talk about something else. This has been a pretty productive episode, and uh, I really think I really hope that y'all got something out of the, the SSH discussion, and I hope y'all will take the opportunity to at least go uh, download the live CD of uh, Ubuntu 9, 9.04, the newest one that's out. Here in a few weeks, I'm going to be letting y'all know, know uh, uh, what the GUI guy has to say about Debian 5.01 because I did download it and it will load on the machine that I've been having so much trouble with so we'll get back with you on that all you guys in the chat room listen up and all you guys out there listening to the edited version that you downloaded through iTunes or some other podcast we are looking to put together another round table episode 11 which was a a uh, impromptu round table on different discussions is our different uh subjects in Linux and amateur radio uh, went over so well that we may be looking to do it again. So if you have a microphone that you can attach to your computer or a telephone you can call in on, then you're fair game. Just get a hold of us and let, a, let us know that you're interested and we'll keep everybody advised on this as it progresses. So with that, I think we've pretty much covered just about everything. This is Richard in the bunker in Balt Springs, Texas. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, shoot me an email at kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com or follow me on Twitter. It's kb, or uh, twitter.com stroke kb5jbv or visit the website, leave us a comment over there. Or even better, you can go over to blacksparrowmedia.com and check out the forums. Uh, just click on the forum link and it'll take you on in. We got a handful of forums in there for Linux in the Hamshack. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Russ, and he can give you his contact information. Well, you can reach me at k5tux at blacksparrowmedia.com, or if you don't want to do all that typing, you can try k5tux at lhsinfo.org. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com stroke Woodman. And you can use J.R. Woodman to find me on just about all of those other social networking sites out there on the Internet. And I think I saw about six more of them pop up just today. And I don't plan on joining any of them. So I think that's about all I had to say. Make sure you uh, continue to download the episode, send us your feedback, post in the chat rooms, add comments to the postings, and hopefully we'll keep you all interested for this episode and for lots more to come. And I'm going to send it back to the bunker down in Dallas in a second here, but from between the peaks of the Ozark Mountains up in north-central Arkansas, this is Russ, K5TUX. And from high top the Bailey Thornhill building in beautiful Balt Springs, Texas, this is KB5JBV. Y'all have a good evening.